0: Jika, my name is Larry Walsh and I'm an elder of the Tanurong people and the Kulin Nations. And we acknowledge we
1: are on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Warwang people and the Boon people. And we pay our respects to their ancestors and we also pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And through them, we also pay our respects to all Aboriginal and all the communities that live in the western suburbs. Welcome to FCAC Radio, a podcast series produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre, platforming artists, creatives and stories in Melbourne's west and beyond. Hello
0: and thank you for listening in. My name is Irvi and today I have joining me the wonderful Kent McCutter. Kent is a writer, editor and publisher. He is the author of three poetry collections, the managing editor of Cordite Poetry Review and the publisher of Cordite Books. Kent has helped many emerging writers find their place in a literary community. Before we speak to him, enjoy this excerpt from one of his own poems, titled Fat
2: Chance. Christmas Eve 1971. The remains of a Lancer Lockheed L188A electro-turbo prop sprinkled over the mountainous terrain near Puerto Inca, Peru, after a lightning strike disabled the aircraft, causing a mid-air explosion. There had been very heavy turbulence, and the plane was shimmying violently. Luggage, gifts, flowers, and Christmas cakes pinballed around the cabin. The electricity remained in a fading tropical storm caused St. Elmo's Fire a rare occurrence of a highly charged electrical halo that encapsulates conductive airborne objects around the entire fuselage. The starboard engine disintegrated. Julianne Kepke is currently a professor of biology in Germany. When she was a 17-year-old girl flying with her mother en route to Lima, she found herself strapped into her seat, fully conscious and, at this point, uninjured, Hurtling in a parabolic lob from the force of the detonation at 3,500 meters above ground level. That is the end. It's all over. Those were the final words Kepke ever heard from her mother. The plane then slipped into a free fall nosedive and broke apart. Her final thought before she eventually passed out was that the rainforest below resembled broccoli. Kepke fell all 3,500 meters down to the rainforest canopy with no parachute or safety device of any kind. When she woke, the seat was upright on the jungle floor with her in it. It was 9 a.m., precisely. Her watch still worked. She was in the Peruvian jungle. Her arms and legs were slashed from branches and her collarbone fractured. When I heard the sounds of running water, I knew I had to follow it, because a river would lead to human settlement, she recalled later. Kepke was wearing a very short, sleeveless cotton mini-dress, and one of her white sandals remained. Her vision was profoundly myopic. Her glasses were blown off during her descent. She used her remaining sandal to ascertain the ground ahead of her as she walked, checking for snakes, quicksand, and bogs. She scooped maggots from her wounds, then ate them. She drank muddy water. On her third day, she ran across a three-seat row from the wreckage, upside down, and staked about a half-meter above the ground. Supporting it were three bodies, still buckled in, rammed into the earth up to their shoulders, feet sticking upwards. Their heads had acted as arrowheads upon impact. Kepke followed the meandering river through the jungle for 10 days before being found by lumbermen from a remote settlement. They first took her for a water goddess from a tribal legend, a hybrid of a water dolphin and a blonde, white-skinned woman. Two of the 92 passengers survived the explosion and 3,500-meter fall into the jungle, Kepke and her mother. Fewer than half the bodies were recovered, The mother's body was discovered on 12 January 1972. The coroner found that she too had survived the impact but had been too badly injured to walk. She died by dehydration in the rainforest.
0: Thanks so much for reading your work, Kent. Can you tell us a little bit about what defines journalism poetry, which this prose poem is in the form of, and what drew you to this form?
2: Well, uh, this is a, a term that I, I invented for myself. And, um, basically what I wanted to do, uh, was to, uh, apply, uh, as many constraints as I possibly could to my quote unquote normal writing style. So most of my poetry is, is quite dense, a lot of verbiage, a lot of references. Um, it's ephemeral, it bounces around a lot, um, but I wanted to try to write something as clear and concise as possible w- without any frippery, without ever using a word like frippery uh, <laughs> in, in such a poem. And, and so it was really just an exercise to try to write something um, monumentally clear. And, and I, I thought that nonfiction would be an interesting way to, way to do that. Um, and so it was really a, a challenge that I, that I set out to myself.
0: What was the process that you took in writing this piece? Did you have to research each of these and what kind of inspired the structure that you've used?
2: Yeah, I did um I did research all of these pieces. So all, all the pieces are true. And I this was um, this is some time ago now. This is maybe eight or nine years ago that I first wrote this piece. So I was researching all of this online and in um and in the libraries with a an infant son on my lap, or, or or sleeping, and so there was a lot of one-handed Google searching going on. Um, but but I was I was really quite I got really quite taken with the idea of the sole survivor of airline crashes, and that there are actually quite a few of them um, in in the age of flight. And so I researched them as much as I possibly could. Some of them are very limited information. Some are a bit more famous, such as the one that I read earlier. And I wanted to refract the seemingly impossible odds in which people have managed to stay alive. Uh, And I wanted to refract that against the rather absurd odds in which people have managed to kill themselves or other living things, and certainly not by intent. That's an important caveat. Um, and so they're kind of braided together in this weird DNA of um, factual snippets. And together they kind of present a picture of human fragility and stupidity, which which also, I, I think, go hand in hand. So this was the first such journalism poem that I tried. Um, re- reading it now, I could see how I could, I could actually weed out a, a good bit of... Adjectives, uh, other, 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 un, unimportant information, and strip it down even further, which I have done on, on, on later poems. But uh, this is my first attempt. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's super interesting, and I think yeah, for the listeners, it's is there a place that we can find the entire poem?
2: It may it may be online at the Lifted Brow. It was originally published in print in that publication. I'm not sure if it ever made it online with them or not. If not, then it then it isn't online. But it is in my second. A uh, collection of poetry called Sputnik's Cousin.
0: Ah, oh, great! Yeah, I'd recommend getting that book. It's full of some really great poems. And this one for the listeners, it's uh, yeah, as Kent described, it's snippets from different events where there's been soul survivors or there's a death that occurs in some way, whether it's with an animal or a tree, even in one case. But I think yeah, it's that that thread of fragility and stupidity is really a great way to put it. I guess they're all united in the sense that there is a death in each one, but the details are so particular that it kind of right. brings about that idea of chance or maybe even fate, I guess, in some ways.
2: Yeah, right. And, and I wanted to present these incredulous facts, you know, w- with without any ec- echo chamber of, of, of style, really just presenting facts. And so ergo the term journalism poetry that, that I thought for this, um, it's just a collection of facts arranged in a way to present kind of a wider picture
0: some lines that stuck out to me was she scooped maggots from her wounds then ate them um which is
2: right a pretty (laughs)
0: intense image um supporting it at, at the end of that paragraph too there's a line that says supporting it were three bodies still buckled in rammed into the earth up to their shoulders feet sticking upwards their heads had acted as arrowheads upon impact which is a really powerful image as well. So did you go about choosing facts which seemed a little bit poetic as well for this piece?
2: Well, well, I, I did, but I, again, I wanted to present them as just exactly how they were reported on from the mm-hmm. the sources that, that I read. So the piece I read about uh, Julianne Kepke certainly is the most famous and had the, the most to look at. But, but others, there would be surprisingly little information. So there wasn't a lot to go on and I didn't want to invent any sort of um narrative that may or may not have happened or to dramatize anything so I think just stating okay a a a row of airline seats fell nearly 3,500 meters with people still in them and stuck into it stuck into the ground using people's heads fact (laughs) I mean it's, it's it's gruesome it's visceral Uh, but it's also blatant and and, and it does capture your attention without needing to do anything else. You don't have to do anything else with that fact than just present it.
0: I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you're going at the moment. It seems like a pretty intense time in the world politically, health-wise, it's a lot lot going on. We're still in COVID lockdown for the audiences listening. What do you think the most significant impacts of COVID-19 has been on the arts and the literature sector in Australia?
2: Well, I think the most significant impact is certainly where there is a, a public outcome or, or a public event, and um, so theater companies and musicians uh, and, and film, at least audience for film. So all, all of those things have pretty much just stopped, and, and, and maybe there's a flicker of some of that coming back, but it's still far too far too soon to really say. You know, you know, publishing has is is affected uh but just not as significantly as that and there's there's no two ways about it. we've had to cancel a number of our book lunches for this year and one of the things I really wanted to do in in response to that was to just offer 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 up books at a at a relatively preposterous um uh forty percent discount like in perpetuity I ran it for about three months and we are a registered charity we get we're funded by government money and um it was just something i felt was the right thing to do to offer free postage and half off books or nearly half off books and and the response was really great so we we you know we moved thousands of copies of of books to people who were first-time buyers all over the country and it really it got books into people's hands. Gave them something, something to do during isolation. Say so, art's still very much alive. Uh, you just kind of had to um, negotiate it in in slightly different terms. And and again, um, you know, I, I was still able to edit future books that are still not published. So my production cycle really wasn't hugely affected, uh, but it certainly was for for many many artists and. Coming back from that, I think it will, it will not be the same. And coming back, well, it, it's almost a misnomer. I don't think there is any coming back because it, that assumes a return to normal. It will just change things massively. And, and the, hopefully there will be a blossoming of, of the digital engagement, which people were forced into initially, but really has a lot of potential.
0: Could you maybe speak a little bit about your experience working with arts funding bodies in Australia and Victoria, especially in this time where we've seen um, funding being channeled into different avenues, like with COVID response funding, but also we've seen the cutting of funding from federal levels to a lot of funding bodies. So, what has been your experience in the past with this?
2: Right. Well, I've been involved with with uh, the pursuing of funding and 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 the getting and the acquitting of funding now for about uh for about a decade um with with city of melbourne funding with with state of victoria funding state of new south wales funding uh and 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 federal funding and um so it's kind of a long and convoluted tale which which one we want to discuss but i I think um the the australia council is kind of front and center on, on people's minds at the at the moment and I I will have to say that all the arts funding bodies were very swift, uh, and rightfully so, in in responding to COVID. Although some of the responses, I think, raises some significant questions. I think one that I would raise regarding the Australia Council is uh, they cancelled pretty much everything to then shift money from A to B to respond to COVID but i think their hands were a bit forced and then that gets to the water picture that we have a you know a, a national government that is extraordinarily miserly on the uh, funding it gives to to the arts that's the first problem th- that there is beyond that the australia council has um, a huge portion of its budget which is guaranteed to uh, dance companies and ballet and operas without those companies having to lift a finger to apply. Now, obviously, there's a lot of work going on and maintaining the buildings and and the production and all of that. Uh, but a huge a huge portion of the Australia Council budget does go to people who do not have to apply for it, uh, and that's deeply problematic. Uh, that certainly doesn't apply to any any publisher or I think any any um, or, or or yeah, in, in any visual art place. So the the scraps that are left over are increasingly fought over, um, you know, by by medium and small and, and micro organizations, and really it, it stems from the, the pitiful amount of funding that starts from the top, and yeah. So I think, um, Australia Council has taken a fair bit of heat in what they've done uh, regarding this and and I would have some criticism there but they also have their hands very strongly tied this also just so happened to come at a time when they were doing um, four year operational funding which is kind of um, well it's a big investment for them and very few very few places actually were awarded that there was an expression of interest process and then a full application process and um it really, uh, you know, went, went to very few places. And I, I think there's some things that could have been done with the amounts applied for and actually who was making the choices. So in my involvement with with like Creative Victoria and Australia Council, the city of Melbourne has been as a arts peer assessor. So most places, um, with the exception of Create New South Wales, use... A body of peers, and that—that that is colleagues, writers, uh, managers of arts organizations—to assess applications, and I've done that on, on a number of occasions for for all three places. Long, long time ago, um, it was almost certainly just politicians and bureaucrats making choices, and then. Maybe it was in the sixties or early seventies. I'm not sure. That was well before my time in Australia. But people, uh, the, the governments developed arts boards, um, and so those boards had professionals on them that were designed to make insightful and educated choices about applications that, that came in. Uh, as the years as the years clicked by, those boards began to be challenged for well, the obvious. Possibilities of, of nepotism, favoritism, and things like that. So, um, a lot of funding bodies went to peer assessing, which is a little bit more democratic, but also provides quite a volatile response in the way that boards kind of produced a very predictable response. And they both have their pluses and minuses. One has to distribute public money somehow, um, and and those have been kind of the two ways. However, and there's been a lot of a lot of stories of late that, that um, are kind of attacking these boards that actually don't exist, and cr- cries of being defunded, when uh, to be defunded means that you are perpetually guaranteed investment in in your art organization, and and that just hasn't been the case. Um, so. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of outcry and misinformation about what's going on. Uh, overall, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sorry state and it, it really starts from the very top.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think even as we speak today, there was, uh, you brought up the issue of larger arts organisations or cultural institutions being the recipients of bigger amounts of funding, which they obviously need to keep going. But it does kind of really cut out smaller organisations and independent or, you know, not-for-profit places. So I guess we have a real problem there. Like um, uh, the federal government's announced a $250 million um, stimulus package finally for the arts, but $90 million of that, of that is, uh, I think, loans. And then also it doesn't, we're not sure of what the implications will be, but it looks likely that it will be established and bigger organizations receiving the bulk of that funding. So I guess the most vulnerable places are still at risk.
2: Yeah, and unfortunately that's where Cordite Publishing Inc and probably even the Fitzgerald Center uh, wouldn't even register a, a, a blip uh, on, on those monies. I mean, it's, it's an insulting, an insultingly small sum. And uh, yeah, it's a, a, enormously frustrating for sure.
0: yeah how do you keep resilient in these times, which is for me personally, even working in the arts, I'm finding it quite difficult at the moment with the uni fees restructure that the government's just announced with humanities degrees being 113% increase, which I did a philosophy major as well as as a literature major. And I loved doing my arts degree. It was uh, the best time of my life, I think, just getting four years to study whatever I wanted. So it feels really like we're cut off in terms of funding, but also inspiring the next generation artists as well as just people that like studying the arts. So on top of everything else, I'm finding it a bit difficult at the moment to keep positive about the future of the arts. How do you, how do you keep resistant um, well, in this time?
2: It, it is quite difficult. And, and the organization that I'm a director of uh, volunteer of, um, you know, it's not only is it certainly nowhere near guaranteed sums of, of, of public arts funding, It's not even involved in multiple year operational funding for medium to somewhat larger organizations. So something like Cordite Publishing Inc. puts together six to seven annual single year project funds per year to keep going. And the more of those that we can do creates a better chance to stick around. Uh, But it's quite a Byzantine shell game of how that remains. And that's something that Probably a lot of listeners might not realize is that we may have X amount of money to only pay people who live in New South Wales and another X amount of money to only pay people who live in Victoria, or a third set of money, Z, who can only pay for critics and visual arts. So it's it's extraordinarily intricate how to keep a arts organization going that is not on multiple year funding. However, it is it is with with love and passion that I do so because uh, having a place to publish for new and emerging writers I think is is critical to have and Corday just is one place but there's not a whole lot more I mean there's very few literary journals um, in in the country let alone those that would actually focus on, on poetry so yeah it it, it is a struggle uh, but there are, there are ways it takes a lot of donated time and it takes a lot of a lot of savvy um i'd like to note that uh, a new publication like like liminal has done a a fantastic a fantastic job of producing great work by good writers and a fantastic looking product if i may use that word Um,
0: yes absolutely yeah
2: but you need to find your right now for for people like us you need to kind of find your champion and and um try not to try not to burn them out really but it's a it's it's a lot of work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think Burnout in the Arts as well is another very explored topic and very true. So for our listeners, um, Kent is the managing editor for one of the most important literary journals in Australia called Art Poetry Review. Um, and, yeah, all of the stuff that you've said, Kent, is really true for me. I think even when I... When I finished my arts degree, getting um, my honors thesis published in your publication was just, you know, it might have been like a small thing, but it, for me, it meant a lot. And it just, uh, I think, just that opportunity to be published, to have a writing community is what Cordite offers. So we're really glad that you do it and keep
2: doing it. Thank you.
0: Um, now, you're originally from the U.S., having lived in Minnesota, Montana and New Mexico. What was your experience of migration to Australia? And do you think there's any similarities and differences between the various literary communities you've been a part of here and abroad?
2: The first thing that comes to mind was that it was easy and it was my choice. I am a, I am a boat person. I chose to get on a container ship and I took it across the Pacific for two weeks. And I wound up in Australia and I paid for it because I had a good job before that and I could pay for it. And I was not persecuted. And I showed up here as kind of a plan C to pursue um, further further education at University of Melbourne. So I am, at the, at the time I was 29 years old. So I was, I was a white male English speaking, straight identifying ad- adult. And so I'm kind of really the really the the bullseye of privilege and i'm i'm well well aware of what each one of those gives so my my coming to australia was very easy and there's even a common language as funny as i sound i i tried to move to italy um in in the in the year 2000 and and that didn't didn't work out quite so well and a d- different story for a different time but not N- not having the language barrier and and really, I, d- I didn't really stand out. I mean, until I opened my mouth and said something, I didn't really stand out here. Um, so it was not hard. And um, that was probably one, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to do the, the, the Joyful strains book. But yeah, it was um, a fairly smooth transition moving abroad with um, you know, because of pursuing a degree at a university. It's really the easiest way to go to go long term abroad things are all mapped out and arranged for you with with some effort of course but it's it's you know you can't really it's a lot a lot harder to go if you are a refugee on on a boat and and try to show up here I mean they're they're hardly even comparable things so yeah it was it was very very easy for me
0: yeah absolutely and I think even for me um my family from India and we came here um, just because my dad's job had shifted him. And even though it's been, you know, um, I probably have gone through times of feeling like an outsider, but then I think that's what makes it especially devastating when you see Australia's treatment of refugees. And um, yeah, just that it would be a really scary um position to be in so
2: and and one of my reasonings of of leaving the states was uh in part in genuine part was that I I wasn't really keen to live in George Bush's America anymore at the time and little did I know um that Johnny Howard's Australia wasn't a a huge lot better but both would get a whole both would get a whole lot worse Uh,
1: yeah a whole lot worse
2: and um so there you go. Um, I'm still here. I'd I planned on being here for two years. It's been just over sixteen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah. It's scary how the world has turned. Even in in India, um, the leading government now is like pretty conservative and very racist. So against minority groups. So yeah, scary space everywhere. Really. Now, with your studies, your tertiary studies, you actually, I'm interested to know a bit more about this because I think it is a really good mix in the arts. But you studied um, a Bachelor in Finance and Accounting before you studied English with a focus on creative writing. What inspired those differences in choice? And do you think they complement each other, those skills?
2: Look, I I pursued um, business degrees from the University of Montana way back in the early 90s, just because I wasn't sure what I I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And the university system was fairly different than I think Australia was at the time. I think they have actually grown quite similar, unfortunately. So, you know, I I thought about the romantic idea of running a bookshop and maybe a business degree would help for that. And, and, and sure it probably would, but I I didn't really know what else to do. I didn't um, particularly want to go to university, but I, I kind of felt a bit of family pressure, and I wasn't sure what else to do with my life. I certainly wasn't going to wasn't going to go in the military by any stretch. I was not I was not accepted to go into the Peace Corps. I was kind of bummed about that, and um, so I kind of just fell in the direction of, of pursuing business degrees, and then I just stuck with it to show that I had completed and, and done something. So my professional career did not start out in publishing or anything literary at all. It was in superannuation accounting. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I do. I don't rue that I have those degrees, and they have consistently come in handy on the CV, uh, especially, especially when I accepted the role as treasurer for the small press network many years ago. Now um, it was predominantly because I had that background, but also an interest. And now in publishing at the time, and so I had a, an unusual business literary mix, which rarely comes in handy, but has. And and the time, and the times where it has, um, those have been really pivotal points. So,
0: yeah, that's great. I think it. I think it is really yeah a great thing to have uh, as a mix as well, and something that sets you apart. Yeah, I'm just good to learn a few different things. Now, with your publishing, how did you start in that field?
2: Well, I was living in uh, Florence, Italy, in 1999, and um, I managed to lose a huge sum of money in a day by doing a very foolish thing of, of leaving. Like uh, there, there was no, there was no euro at the time in Italy. It was, it was still coming. So I had like 80 million lira in my pocket. Uh-huh. And I was gonna pay some university fees with it, which they wanted only in cash, which sounds extremely sus, of course.
0: Yes. <laughs> and I had
2: bought this beautiful new blue velvet jacket and my first mobile phone, and they were quite ricky back then. So <laughs> I managed to leave all of that in a cafe for about 15 minutes and I left it there. And I came back oh. and it was all gone. And I couldn't communicate enough to so say I-, I left this stuff, what has happened to it. So Someone, someone made out huge, and that really ended my Italian Italian experience. So,
0: yeah,
2: (laughs) how this ties into publishing is a friend of mine was was living in Chicago and was working at the University of Chicago Press, academic publisher in Chicago, and felt that um, he could probably get me a job if I were to somehow find my way there. And I didn't have anything else to do by that point, that's for sure. So I, I made my way back to uh, the States and, and moved to Chicago. And lo and behold, he, he was right. I, I did get a position um, as a marketing manager uh, for academic journals with University of Chicago Press in, um, in February of the year 2000. And so that that's really where the publishing career began and i was there for about four years and it was during that it was during that role at university of chicago press that i decided um academic publishing is 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 interesting i i I do love it but i i want to actually study you know something of personal interest Um, it's looking it's feeling like literature and maybe even weirdly enough poetry so That's where the, the the kernels of that really started. I did take some coursework there, uh, at the time, but I, I, um, yeah, that's, that's how it began.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about your book of nonfiction essays that you edited titled Joyful Strains Making Australia Home? Yeah, look,
2: that was, um, that was a co-idea with my co-editor and I, Ali Leamer, uh, that we had one night and, um we pitched it around to a couple of publishers as i recall and uh, a firm press was a relatively new press at the time and, and they were interested with the caveats that there you know was not not, not a lot of budget and it would was going to be a, a labor of love thing and and that was something i always knew would be would be the case so like they were they were clear about what the possibilities were and, and we decided to do it anyway but we were interested in specifically hearing about other established writers who had emigrated or migrated, or had come from other countries and moved to Australia, and and what that initial experience was was like. So it was a it was a fascinating experience trying to to edit the voices of twenty five different people with you know while retaining their voices, and and some had a a fair bit more intervention than others. Um, the, the The level of English varied varied quite a bit. and it, it was it was a, a fantastic experience. I learned a lot about editing unique voices at the time and respecting nuances. Um, yeah, it, it was it was terrific and it's has done done very well, actually. It's uh, taught in various curricula now, and i'm I'm proud of that. one of the biggest gaps I see now, Given that it's about eight years ago, is that uh, it has very little African diaspora writing, and the we do have we do have Malan Nun who is uh, represented in the book, and very nearly he had Magic Toba in in the book as well. Um, but um, finding an author or a writer born and raised perhaps in somewhere in Africa and has come to Australia is a lot easier to do now than. You even in mm. what it was nine years ago. So it's, it's really great to see that change.
0: Absolutely. I was going to say that um, when it was first released, I remember thinking that it was one of the first books of its type and that I hadn't really even seen a book with that kind of idea of having nonfiction essays by writers who had migrated mm. before. And even though it seems easier to find writers from different backgrounds, it was one of the first books of its type back then. Tying back to Cordite, um can you speak a little bit about how Cordite showcases marginalized voices in Australia and internationally and why was that a priority for you when when you were making Cordite? Look,
2: Cordite has been around for a lot longer than I think a great many people realize and it certainly was not started by me. I, I, I began in, in uh, 2011. But Cordite was co-founded by... Um, a couple of guys in Sydney, one of which was was Peter Minter, the Indigenous Australian author and poet and academic. Um so it's really it's really always been mindful of of cultural sensitivity and nuance and, and representation. Um it was really it was actually it was mm-hmm. It was the the second Australian journal uh, ever to publish exclusively online. Uh, a journal called Jacket was the first, which was also very poetry centric. Um, Cordite was second, and and then you had a few years later you had journals like Peril and Mascara, r- really coming along and and um, stirring the pot of, of wh- white supremacy and ingrained um, you know privilege to 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 present those kinds. of kind of writers and when i came in in 2011 um i still had a a lot to learn i mean I, i was doing joyful strains at the same time um and but i definitely wanted to represent a true and accurate representation of literature in this country also because i think it's very interesting and it's very very good so when I began, I was like, oh, what, "What can I do to be an ally and to remain an ally to to these voices and communities?" And I started with with really opening it wide up the the breadth and the range of of publications that we did. So there there was um, I remember that there, there was a piece on on Greek Australian writing and Asian Australian writing, um, but I was still kind of at the center of selecting who and what uh, and where and and what it was going to be. and I and after a few years, I realized that that space has to be seated as well. so i can I can run an organization, mm-hmm. but to be a true ally, you you can create space, but you need to let somebody else curate that space uh, and and make make those decisions. Yeah. And that was a really important distinction that I realized some years ago. and and that's what we're still doing now. so it's um, we are a very international publication. we you know engage with communities all around the world uh, but it is, it is still Australian centric mm. so it's a way to get Australian poetry out into the world and to bring international poetry here in my time in my time in academia and and publishing poems overseas it has been really surprising from places in the U.K. and the U.S. that really just didn't have any idea that that there, that there was poetry being written in Australia. Yeah. And, uh, you know, woeful ignorance, which my home country is very renowned for. <laughs> and so it, the journal every year, it's wider and wider and wider read because it's been free. It's been free to access. And, and, um, and it, it is my interest and purview to, to have that Representation, but to, to be an ally and and to let to create space for other editors of Carlo to to do with to do what they need.
0: Yeah, so I think um, with these online communities, especially like Cordite, it kind of creates a community of international writers yeah. as well. And even though it is Australia centric, it's a great place to connect with other writers. So I was just interested in just um, talking a little bit about writing communities and. Um, and how to kind of create them in this day and age or uh, become a writer if someone is interested in writing poetry. I think one place for me that really helped when I was younger and out of uni was I uh, collected works. So I just wanted to do a shout-out to it because I miss it. And yeah. For our listeners, it was a really amazing bookshop on Swanston Street. I've got some really great memories of... Um, Going there for book launches, it seemed like a lot of uh, even Cordite's launches were there and books that you've worked on and maybe your own. Were they launched there as well?
2: Uh, the first two were, yes. Yes, they were. Yeah,
0: so it felt to me like a hub of um, a literary community and owners, Chris and Redder, were always great right. mentors for younger people as well and inviting us. We never really felt like we weren't part of it when they were around because they would always invite us along, even though we were just, you know, silly 18, 19 year olds. But now that that's gone, can you comment anything on the kind of importance of these sort of spaces in our city as well as how we can maybe create communities of writing around us?
2: Yeah, well, I mean there have been um, a a bit of a resurgence in in monthly readings such as the the, 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 the sick leave um, reading in, I believe, Collingwood. I'm I'm thinking of of Toby Fitch's readings um, at at Sappho Books in, in Sydney. So the, the, the monthly reading event has done, has prospered in, in the past few years. Is
0: there anywhere we can go to find these or do, would you know um, where we could, yeah, it's like sick leave or uh, connections to these monthly readings?
2: Well, that, uh, it's a good question, uh, a, a salient point to ask now. I was going to dovetail that the, the, these, these are at, at really the, the, the cut water of, moving, of, of that which has moved online. Because, yeah, yeah. because that that, was, that is the only option. So you have um, the, the the couplet reading in Newcastle and, and a similarly named one with with Queensland Poetry Festival. So they're all pretty much found online now as well. Whether that will be a permanent thing or or not, that's I can't really say. Um, mm-hmm. But there are little pockets bubbling up all the time. Um, there there's there's new publications or new literary outfits like subbed in. In Sydney, which I I desperately hope stick around. They they do chat books. They do some online stuff as well. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interest going. And um, you know, a long time ago, I was at a some event or other at the Wheeler Center, and um, I remember overhearing Louise Swin, who was a a co-founder of of Sleepers Publishing, a, a classic but all too short-lived small press publisher. And, and I remember she said to the crowd, start something, just, just two words, start something. And, and I've really seen a lot of that. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll touch back to, to Liminal again and, and Diged Press where people have started something where they has where they have noticed or, or felt a gap. And, there is quite there is quite a bit of that going on now and um it's that's very it's very heartening it's very heartening um
0: yeah absolutely
2: I would never want cordite to be the only place to publish a poem and obviously obviously it's not but it's is still fairly finite in the number of places to to take a poem to publish
0: yeah absolutely and it Feels in one way limited, but then also as you're saying with Liminal, who will also be interviewing for um, for FCAC Radio, and I think there's a lot of because there is a growing need because maybe there is um, limitations on where we can publish. We're hoping at FCAC we can start um, helping a bit more of a literary movement here as well, or just providing space for people to make those connections and have a community to share with.
2: And I, f- I found that being being the managing editor of, of Cordite Poetry Review for for a decade now, it, it is a unique position to see w- what kind of work and from who and from where is being submitted to the journal, and it's really, it's really from every state and territory, but hundreds and hundreds of postcodes uh, of people are, are 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 engaging and contributing. But it's it's a unique vantage to to find work that might not be coming from. Uh, an academic or a lecturer's prized student, or 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 someone or someone's best mate. What I'm saying is, someone who has been completely outside any coterie, any group, any clique, and and there's no way to say that poetry def- definitely does work at, in, in those circles. But a lot of people are writing and producing outside of them, and they contribute to to the journal. And um, so a number of those those poets. That are um, I wound up doing doing print books for so f- first books for um, so it's it's really exciting to to put a book out there from a poet that a lot of the poetry coteries really have never heard of and and all, all of a sudden and and wow actually that's very good and it's winning prizes and and so it's it's very rewarding to to do that Now, it is a, a unique position that that I have uh, but mm-hmm. in having that position. I, I think it's important to to produce work by disparate uh, and you know, disparate voices uh, who might not otherwise get a look in.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. We we're lucky to have you in that position um looking over it. And I think that would be that's really great to know that there are just you know poetry pieces coming from people all over Australia and I guess different pockets of the world as well. Yeah, that seems just hopeful to me. So, thank you so much for your time today. I just wanted to ask for our listeners: what are some ways that we can engage with your personal work or cordite in Melbourne today?
2: Well, with my personal work, that which is free and findable online. If, if you if you, Google, if you Google my name, that you, you get quite a, a few hits of various interviews and, and things. So you can find some poems online. Uh, I've got three books out there, which probably aren't in any shops anymore. But some, some might, some might be orderable from readings or, or, or what have you. I, I do, I do understand that my name has now become relatively synonymous with Cordite, and I'm, I'm far better known now as a publisher and editor than I am as an author. And I've, I've, I've come, I've come to terms with that. But I, I would encourage any anybody listening to. To submit work to the journal, we have guest editors on each issue. They're very different by design, and it's always fascinating to see what gets published and, and what doesn't. So, um, I'd like to uh, I'd like to just throw that out there as well. We're always looking for good work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have the links to Cordite as well as your personal work and page on episode description. So take a look at for that. And I just wanted to thank you so much for this interview and for your time today, Ken. I think you are known as a writer, but also as someone who's helped so many people in the industry and continue to help us. So thanks so much for your time and um, everything you do.
2: Thank you, Irvi. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening in
2: to FCAC Radio produced by
1: Footscray Community Arts Centre and proudly supported by Maribyrnong City Council and City of Melbourne's COVID-19 Arts Grants. FCAC is a not-for-profit, independently-run community arts organisation that supports over 550 artists annually. You can support FCAC by donating to the centre, hiring our venue, coming to our events, or sharing our content online. Follow at Footscray Arts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit footsgrayarts.com to find out more. We appreciate your support and generosity.